everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. This is your host, Jeff Horn. Please don't forget to give us ratings. Pass this podcast on to people that are interested in all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Subscribe, give us ratings, all of that good stuff. Let's get to this week's two cases. One is an employment case with a securities law component. The other is a Tort Claims Act case with a common carrier discussion. We previously talked about this case with my friend, personal injury guru, Joe Lepore, just about one year ago. Let's start with the employment and securities law case, Goldfarb v. Solomine. Solomine, his father, his family, his family business, sought the services of a financial advisor to help them make investment decisions. Goldfarb was employed in that business for another company, and the parties had some discussions. Goldfarb believed he had been given a firm offer of employment that provided for a base salary plus percentage based upon making successful investment decisions. His claim is he quits his job making some 300000 plus per year in order to take on this presumably more lucrative opportunity with the Sololine family. Problem is, he does not have a writing. The New Jersey Securities Law Act of 1997 provides that in order for a financial advisor agreement or contract to be enforceable, it must be in writing. Solomon uses that as a defense, indicating that we had no written agreement. In fact, there was never a written term sheet, even though Goldfarb had sought a term sheet, it never materialized in this record. The Supreme Court found that the New Jersey securities law would apply to the lack of a contract, i.e. Goldfarb is not entitled to recover under a contract theory. He does not get the benefit of his bargain with Solomine, even if he proved that they had an oral agreement. However, the Supreme Court accepting the analysis of the lower court and the essentially theory presented to the jury finds that the plaintiff Goldfarb can recover on a promissory estoppel basis, meaning that he did not have a contract. However, he had a promise that had indicia of reliability He relied upon it, acted on it, and as a result, should be able to recover what he would have made had he continued in his prior employment, not what he would have made had the goldfarb Solomine contract been consummated and he had enjoyed success at that job. Justice Albin files a dissent stating that the majority, and I should say the majority opinion written by Justice Lavecchia, joined by all justices except for Albin, who filed a dissent, and Justice Patterson, don't forget two T's in Justice Patterson, did not participate. Justice Albin's dissent essentially says, hold on, we've got this securities law, 
We've got sophisticated parties, gold form, trained as an attorney, worked as an attorney, sophisticated financial analyst should have known better that you cannot enforce an unwritten employment agreement in the financial services industry based upon the 1997 law and that by the Supreme Court allowing the crafting of a workaround that is finding that Goldfarb loses as a matter of law on his contract claims but can prevail on an equitable remedy that, in essence, undermines the entire intent, spirit, and letter of the securities law. Kind of interesting. My two cents, as I always like to offer, is that Goldfarb seems to have gotten a pretty raw deal. He would have enjoyed a base salary and a percentage of his success. He believed that Solomine was going to be an outstanding employer and client and that he would have produced amazing results and gotten a percentage of his amazing success. Hence why this case has been kicking around and made it to the Supreme Court after some eight years later after the party's agreement fell apart. Let's move on to the next case. This is a case that we've discussed before. If you go back to the February 27, 2020 bold sign bar, I spoke with my friend and personal injury guru, Joe Laporte, and we talked about this case, Mason, M-A-I-S-O-N-V-N-J Transit. Trial court recovery is $1.8 million. The facts are the plaintiff, Mason, was a passenger on a New Jersey Transit bus. She was harassed by other young males on the bus. This is all happening in the middle of the night. She's verbally abused. One or more objects are thrown at her. A knife is flashed at her. There's verbal arguments between her and others on the bus. The young men hit the button to get off the bus, and one of this gang of four or five young men throws a bottle, hits the plaintiff in the head, causing her to bleed profusely. She needs 22 stitches to tend to her wounds, and her forehead is permanently disfigured. The legal questions surround whether New Jersey Transit is protected by Title 59, the Tort Claims Act, or is it to be treated as a common carrier? The Supreme Court splits 4-3 on this case. The majority opinion penned by Justice Albin, joined by Chief Justice Rabner, Justice Solomon, and Justice Pierre-Louis, find that, in essence, even though New Jersey Transit is a public entity and protected by the sovereign immunity, the Tort Claims Act, that the same negligence standard as would apply to a common carrier applies to New Jersey Transit. I should interject that there's a question about how fast New Jersey Transit responded to this incident and their procedures and protocols and the fact that New Jersey Transit made little or no effort to ascertain the identity 
and whereabouts of the young men, one of whom is presumed to be the one who threw the final bottle that smashed this plaintiff in the head, causing her permanent disfigurement. Back to the law. So this case turns in part on an allocation of fault between NJ Transit, the driver, and the other tort feasors. The case embraces the Tort Claims Act, stating that the TCA leaves no doubt that an allocation of fault between a negligent public entity, its employee, and an intentional tort feaser is necessary. The Supreme Court, the majority, 4-3 ruling, don't forget, tailored a jury charge, starting with model jury charge 5.73A, and in considering the New Jersey Supreme Court case from 2003 called Frugis, F-R-U-G-I-S, and the court inside the body of the majority opinion laid out an exact and specific jury charge to address this allocation of fault issue, which brings us to the dissent. Justice Patterson, don't forget two T's, joined in dissent by Justice Lavecchia and Justice Fernandez Vina, concurred in part and dissented in part concurs to the extent that the Tort Claims Act requires an allocation of fault among the players that I've just mentioned. The essence of the dissent is quarreling with the enhancement of the liability applicable to NJ Transit and slanting the jury charge against NJ Transit. Interesting opinion. My two cents, this plaintiff is a very sympathetic plaintiff. A young woman, age 20, a college student, working in New York, taking mass trans back and forth between New York and New Jersey, returning home to New Jersey in the middle of the night, catching the 12 o'clock train, catching the 1 a.m. bus. And what happens? She endures a night of horrors. The Tort Claims Act is designed to rid government of frivolous claims and to manage government liability. It is certainly not the policy of New Jersey to bar a plaintiff who suffers a horrible injury at the hands of a tortfeasor who the governmental entity had no control over, but who could have taken some reasonable steps that would have perhaps eliminated the harm to this plaintiff or reduced the impact. For links to the opinions, check out the show notes. Please consider subscribing, sharing the bold sidebar, and of course, giving us some of those precious ratings on the Apple Podcast app, Google, or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.